are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Church, our text this morning is 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. I'll give you just a second to find that. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. It reads, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life that was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which you have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be made complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is the word of the Lord. We do want to uh, obviously keep in prayer um, St. Stephen's Episcopal Church this morning and all the hurt they've walked through this last week with, you know, something that you never feel like you're ever going to have to face when you walk into a place of worship, right? And so um, just keep praying for them, keep praying for them. Happy Father's Day to you fathers as well. Uh, Welcome to Emmanuel Church for those of you visiting with us. Um, You came and... You're going to hear a sermon on confessing sin, so there you go. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. Um, but uh, my name is Austin Baker. I'm the pastor here. I just want to welcome you all here this morning um, if you're visiting with us. Uh, I am a, um, <clears throat> this is very fitting, Father's Day. I'm a sucker for um, really emotional, sometimes sappy YouTube videos. Uh, I don't watch them all the time, but if I've got a lot of time to waste, I will peruse the internet when I'm bored and come across like videos of like troops coming home to like see their kids and surprise their kids or their families or you know children. One of my favorites is children hearing um, their parents for the first time through like a colloquial implant or something like that where they haven't been able to hear before, something along those lines. But when I come across one of those videos, um, what usually happens is I'll click on it and then start heading down this rabbit hole of videos, one after the other after the other, where at the, usually at the end of it, I'm crying by myself. <laughs> um, hold, this is true, all right? This is not pastor embellishment. Like, you can ask Christine. I'm, I'm like holding my phone. My wife or kids come in, and, uh, and I'm just a mess. It's just, this is my life. I mean, this is, this is what I do. Um, but one of the types of videos that I love the most, uh, maybe you've seen these, is when people begin to see color for the first time. If you've ever seen any of these videos, but you know, they make these glasses now, these special glasses that somebody who's colorblind or can't see 
color, they, they put them on and, and they see color, just vivid color for the very first time. And there's just a ton of videos out there of, of men and women and boys and girls just putting these on. Some who haven't seen color for 60 years, you know, putting these glasses on and just having their worlds just completely like turned upside down. And most of the time, the people that see color, I mean, they're just so overwhelmed. They start crying, you know, weeping that they've, they haven't seen this their whole lives. And now they're seeing something bright and beautiful and and glorious for the first time, you know, dads seeing the color of their kids' eyes for the first time, you know, ever. Uh, wives seeing their husband's hair color for the first time. I mean, it's just an amazing, amazing thing. And at the heart of all those things is really what ties into our sermon for this morning is that they've lived their lives in a world of darkness, right? And now they're actually seeing light for the first time. It's changing everything. This is a major theme in 1 John. The Apostle John is writing to exhort believers to come out of darkness and enter into the light. You know, those who've walked in darkness for so long, they can't even fathom a world lit by the light of the gospel. You know, in verse 5 of the text we just read, what we said a second ago, we find this theme actually rooted in God, where God is light. The appeal for believers to walk in light is based on the character of God. John the Apostle writes in verse 5, I'll just read it for you. It says, This is the message we've heard from him, Jesus, and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So the starting point, the baseline for stepping out of spiritual darkness and into spiritual light is God, who is light. And this imagery of God and light is rooted primarily in the Old Testament. Associations of God and light occur in the Old Testament 139 times. You don't have to be a genius Bible scholar to hear God is light and have your mind drawn to Genesis chapter 1, right? Specifically verses 3 through 5. God created the light of the world we live in. You keep going and come across instances like the Exodus where God is leading his people out of Egypt and he gives them visual light to guide his people by a pillar of fire at night. He's guiding them by his light. God also provides spiritual light for those in spiritual darkness. Towards the end of his life, David, King David, prays in 2 Samuel twenty two twenty nine. 29. He says, For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God who lightens my darkness. The priest Ezra prays in Ezra 9.8 that God has been gracious and gives light to our eyes and a little relief from our bondage. And the light of God actually accomplishes and communicates a handful of things. For one, God as light brings clarity to confusion. I don't know if you've ever been in a place of just utter physical darkness, a cave or out in the woods somewhere where you couldn't find a light or had no idea where you were or where you were going. It just breeds confusion, right? You don't know where you are. I remember uh, being in Mississippi as a teenager, one particular Disciple Nell weekend uh, where I was living. We played, this is what you do on DNL weekends. Uh, you don't really learn about Jesus. You just play capture the flag all night. That's what we were doing. Um, and the house we were staying in was on a bunch of land. And uh, we utilized most, if not all, of this land in playing this game. And if you know anything about me or getting to know things about me, um, I'm a pretty directionless person. I, I have no sense of direction at all. Um, Montclair, whatever this road is on the other side, I turn the wrong way. Literally left or right, I turn the wrong way all the time because I don't know where I am. That's really sad. But I don't. I'm a directionless person. So you can imagine in the darkness of night, this D-Now weekend in the midst of a ton of land and woods, 
I got lost. <laughs> I got lost. My senior year in high school, I remember it. I got lost in the woods. Uh, I had no idea where I was. I didn't know where to go to get back. There was no light shining through. It was pretty scary there for a little while because I'm not an outdoorsy person. I would have died. Um, but when the sun came up, when the sun came up, it gave light and I could see. I could actually see to get back to the house. They were all worried, but I was okay. I was good. My confusion ceased and I could see. All right. It's the same thing with spiritual light. Many times as we enter into the Christian life and try to navigate the Christian life, we get turned around. We get confused. Maybe you have to make a big, big decision. You're confused as to what to do. Or maybe there's a situation in your family that you're trying to navigate. You need some clarity in the middle of the darkness. And God is our light. He provides that many times through his word. You know, Psalm 119, 105. Psalm 119 is the large chapter on the word of God in the Psalms. Psalm 119.105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Light brings clarity to confusion. But second, light also communicates God's moral purity. You know, within this usage of light and God in the scriptures, moral purity is talked about in two ways. One, light communicates God's holiness. You know, whenever God is associated with fire in the Bible... Oftentimes what's being referred to is, is God's holy nature, his consuming fire, kind of that picture of the fire consuming the gift on the altar. His fire goes out before him in wrath and anger towards sin. Jeremiah 4.4, 4, God tells his people to turn from their sin lest his wrath go forth like fire. His holiness cannot stand to be in the presence of sin or have his holy people characterized by their sin. And then the second way moral purity is communicated through imagery of God and light is God's light gives ethical direction. Proverbs 6.23 says the teaching of God is a light. It's a light. The light of God gives light to the darkness of false teaching. It exposes it in the light. It gives light to the darkness of how we live our lives in conformity to his word. He gives light to enable us as believers to have fellowship with one another. His relational light so we're going to come back to here in just a second, so put a pin in that. So God is light, brings clarity to our confusion, tells us of his moral purity and the moral purity required of us. And then third, God is light, communicates his utter transcendence. His utter transcendence. We've talked about this before, but God's transcendence, God is light. Morally pure light means that he is holy, that he's other, that he's completely different than us, independent from us, that he is high and lifted up in his holiness. Reminds us that any kind of darkness cannot dwell in the light of his presence. In fact, darkness can't even approach or exist in his presence. 1 Timothy 6.16 tells us that Christ dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. And if there's anything we know about ourselves, it's that our lives are beset with darkness, right? Spiritual darkness seems to be in every nook and cranny of our hearts. So how can a transcendent God who dwells in unapproachable holy light ever fellowship with sinful people? Unfortunately, John addresses that. Just as he communicates that God is light, that he's transcendent, so too he communicates that God is near us. Imminent is another word for that. But let's reread verses 1 through 4 if you have your Bible. Verses 1 through 4 of 1 John chapter 1. What well, was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. 
And the life was manifested, and we've seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we've seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be complete. So this transcendent God, he draws near to us in Jesus. In 1 John, the first chapter of 1 John communicates to us a variety of things about Jesus. Well, who is Jesus? Well, first we see that Jesus is eternal. He's eternal. Verse 1, what was from the beginning? John, again, taking our minds back to the beginning of creation. Before all things existed, Christ was there. He does this in the Gospel of John as well, which he also wrote, John and 1 John. When he says, in the beginning was the Word. Jesus Christ. Micah 5.2 says that the promised Messiah would be from the beginning, from ancient of days. As the second person of the Trinity, Jesus always has been, He is, and always will be co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is eternal. Second, John reminds us that Jesus was and is human. He's a human being. He's fully God and fully man. When Christ came to earth, he didn't give up his godness, but rather, for the first time in all of eternity, he put on our humanness. He added something to himself, so to speak. He clothed himself with flesh, with humanity. I mean, listen to the earthiness here of John's description of of Jesus. Uh, He's imploring the use of our senses here. What we have heard what we have seen, what we have looked upon, what we have touched. You know, to be honest with you, I think this is one of the components of Christ that we often forget the most. You know, it's not hard for us to think about the risen, exalted Christ and His glory, right? We sing songs about the exalted Jesus as we should. He's victorious over the grave, victorious over death and sin, reigning at the Father's right hand. Those things are all true. But what's hard for us to wrap our minds around as human beings is the humanity of Jesus. That he looked just like other Middle Eastern working class men. That he was probably 5'3", 5'4", hands probably calloused from handling wood and a hammer as a carpenter. His feet were often dirty from the dust of walking from town to town. He probably smelled bad from the perspiration And heat often associated with Middle Eastern climate, culture, no deodorant then. But even harder to grasp than all of that is that the God of all creation, who literally at this moment is holding the universe together by the word of his power, was a baby. A crying, sleeping baby. You know, it's something I've been in my mind a lot over the last three and a half years since my kids have been born watching my kids grow, you know, thinking about my kids as babies you know, as I'm holding them and they can literally do nothing for themselves, right? Nothing. I mean, I am keeping them alive. Christine is keeping them alive. I mean, if they didn't have anyone keeping them alive, they would be utterly hopeless, completely dependent. They're completely dependent on other people. You know, as I've held them as babies over the last few years, I'm just reminded that, that Jesus the Lord of all the universe, who spoke into existence his mom and dad. Think about that. 
was being cared for by his mom and dad, whom he created, depending upon them to keep him alive. I mean, it's mind-blowing. You think about it. It's crazy, but it's true. It's true. And he will remain human in his exalted human new body for all of eternity. He is flesh for the rest of eternity. So Jesus is eternal. Jesus was and still is human. And Jesus restores fellowship. Jesus restores fellowship. Verse 9, John says this, He forgives us of our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. This fellowship, this communal enjoyment of God and of one another is a key theme all throughout the Bible, particularly all throughout this letter, 1 John. To quote one of the commentators I read, John is writing this letter not as a philosopher or ideologue, but as a pastoral counselor and practical theologian. This commentator went on to say that this letter is not an exercise in abstract speculation, but is engaged in pastoral care. John was a pastor. He was a shepherd leading the flock that God had entrusted to his care. And his hope and prayer was for the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, to grant his people true, authentic fellowship. And this fellowship has two directions. It's vertical and it's horizontal. Look at verse 3. If you've got your Bible, John writes that this fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This pure, unbroken fellowship that had been lost at the fall because of our sin can now be restored through the gospel. Because of our sin, we could never keep the law. We could never keep the commands that God put forward in his word. So instead of letting us strive and strive and strive and fail and fail and fail to attain that which is unattainable, God sent his son Jesus to keep the commands of the law for us. You know, we talk a lot about Jesus as our substitute in death, which he was. He was our substitute in death. He took the penalty of our sin upon himself at the cross but he was our substitute in life as well. Keeping the commands of God for us as our covenant representative, as the head of the body, he has kept the commands of God for us and his righteousness has now been imputed to us, given to us. So that now in the New Testament, Christ is our king. He is our representative and we are called righteous before the Lord. It's an amazing thing. You know, the effects of his obedience through faith in him is now applied to us. That's an amazing thing. That's good news. But this also carries with it implications on a horizontal plane. Along with the goal of restored fellowship between us and the Father and the Son and the Spirit, so too we can now experience true fellowship with one another because of the gospel. The benefits of the gospel are not just limited to individuals, but they're to be shared in the body in fellowship with one another. In this chapter alone, in this chapter, 1 John chapter 1, plural pronouns, we, us, our, 28 times. 28 plural pronouns in 10 verses. You can count them. This letter's about community. It's about the fellowship. And one key component to authentic relational community is the willingness of allowing yourself to be known. To be seen, warts and all. We live in a world where perception is reality. 
Oftentimes what we project through social media accounts or in our interaction with our neighbors or coworkers or even fellow churchgoers is anything but reality. I mean, the internet has created a world where you can literally be whoever you want people to think you are. I mean, think about something like a family picture, um, which we have to take later. I'm not looking forward to it. But um, <laughs> 20 years ago, you're heading to Olin Mills. Some of you guys don't even know what that is. You're heading to Olin Mills, right? You have a handful of opportunities for a professional photographer to capture the sweet essence of your smiling family and your kids especially, because that's all kids do all the time. They just smile all the time. That's what they do. That's real. Um, but if you miss any of those few opportunities to snap that picture, you are paying, you're probably either doing one of two things. You're paying more money to get him to snap more pictures, or you just have a horrible family picture, all right? You're trying to convince your kids, so this time smile for the pictures, please. I will bribe you with whatever it takes for you to smile for this picture. So oftentimes you get whatever pictures you are able to produce in this Olin Mills 20-minute photo shoot, right? And if you don't have Family pictures in 20 minutes, I'm sorry, you get weird family pictures that are now on the internet somewhere. But now, because of our phones, we can snap a thousand pictures of our family until we get the one that's perfect. The one of the smiling family we can put out to the world, even if our kids are miserable people in real life, right? Which none of them are. They're all sweet. We live in a world that in spite of all the rhetoric about being your authentic true self still encourages us to put out false projections of ourselves. It's garbage. They don't want you to be real and authentic. They want you to be how they want you to be. But that cannot be the case in the body of Christ. We must truly know ourselves. We must truly know ourselves and then allow people to know us as well. The enemy would love to keep people in darkness, but the people of God are called to live our lives in the light. So let's think about that for just a few minutes. Just a few minutes. Let's think about that. As light-loving as light people, how are we to live our lives according to 1 John 1 that projects truth about us rather than falsehood? Well, first... Whereas sin creates a people of self-deception, the church is to be a people of righteousness. Whereas sin creates a people of self-deception, the church is to be a people of righteousness. Look with me again at verses 6 through 8 and then verse 10. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And look at verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. John is telling us that it's possible to deceive ourselves into thinking we are right with God when we're actually not. The people described here are those who claim to know Jesus but continue to walk in darkness. John says this person is a liar and does not practice the truth. You know, many churches in our day and age are preaching a, a gospel of easy believism and or moral relativity when it comes to obeying the scriptures. Jeremiah speaks about these kinds of pastors and people in Jeremiah 5.31. He says, the prophets prophesy lies. 
The priests rule by their own authority, and my people love it this way. Isaiah 5, 3, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, Paul's last letter in the New Testament. He writes this to Timothy, that the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. You know, many times when you hear teachers teaching or preaching something that's contrary to the gospel, it is God's handing over of those people to the desires of their hearts. It's God's judgment on them. It's passive judgment. What John is not saying, hear me very clearly, what John is not saying is that God's people and his church will be perfect. But the language implored here of walking in darkness, of saying that we have not sinned, it describes a life that is consistently characterized by sin and a refusal to call sin, sin. There's no remorse, there's no desire for repentance. And we see this all throughout the scriptures, do we not? I mean, Adam and Eve sin and play the blame game. Cain shows no remorse when he murders his brother. Aaron blames the people for creating the golden calf. We threw this gold in and this calf just popped out, right? On and on we could go. But there is a real danger of blind self-deception when it comes to sin. Even thinking our actions are righteous, but in reality they are blatantly against God and His Word. But the story of the gospel is that God in Christ delivers us from sin. Personal and corporate sin. Verse 7 describes a people walking in the light, walking in righteousness, as being those who truly understand the implications of what Christ has done. Walking in the light reflects God's character who is light, right? And we are his people. So we walk in the light. We love the light. We don't shy away from the light. We step into the light and let the light expose us. The people of God delight in following the commands of God. It's internal delight coupled with external obedience. And this walking in righteousness in the light, it marks true fellowship. It makes true fellowship possible, which leads to the second component of an authentic gospel people. Whereas sin creates a people of isolation, the church is to be a people of confession. Whereas sin creates a people of isolation, the church is to be a people of confession. If we are a community seeking to live righteously, there will inevitably be times of shortcomings and failures in our own Christian lives. But instead of denying sin, instead of covering up the fact that we are sinful people, which is characteristic of self-deceived people, followers of Christ, we own up to our sin. Verse 9 speaks of confessing our sins. That by confessing our sins, Christ forgives us and he cleanses us. That word for cleanse there in verse 9 is the Greek, same Greek word that's used to get the English word cauterize from. Confession that receives uh, confession that receives cleansing many times is not pleasant. It's painful. It stings, burns. But it is God cauterizing our sin to stop the bleeding, stop the wound. Confession is seen as a normal rhythm of the Christian life. James, John, Jesus, John the Baptist, all of them command believers to confess sin to one another. 
The darkness of sin must be brought into the light of God's grace to experience the transforming power of the gospel. You know, one of the books that I've uh, loved most in my walk with Christ that's had a profound impact on my life is Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Life Together. 127 pages, not a long read. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to get it. Bonhoeffer, Life Together. And in it, he writes extensively on confession of sin, chapter 5 in particular. And I want to read you a couple of quotes from this book. That's kind of long, got it on the screen for you, but it's extremely pertinent to our conversation this morning. He says this, It may be that Christians, notwithstanding corporate worship, common prayer, and all their fellowship and service, may still be left to their loneliness. The final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they do not have fellowship as the undevout, as sinners. He goes on, he says, The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. The fact is we are sinners. Church, when are we going to stop lying to ourselves and to one another about our sin? If anyone should understand the depths of sin in our own hearts, but the patience and grace of a God who is sanctifying us, it is us. It's the church. Why do we play these games? Now, why do we act like Adam and Eve in the garden post-sin, sewing these pathetic fig leaves together to try to cover their shame and their nakedness? Hiding from God, just hoping God will pass them by and leave them to themselves. What are we doing? What are we doing with our sin? Bonhoeffer keeps going. He says this, he says, Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. You know, I would venture to say in a room this size, there are many of us who, in spite of having people sitting all around us right now, feel completely alone in our sin. You've isolated yourself so much from anyone knowing what lies beneath the surface of your life that you are completely and utterly alone. And this is exactly where the enemy wants you. Exactly where he wants you. Let me tell you what this has looked like in my own life. Uh, when I was in seminary, my first semester, I read this book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And this last chapter, I mentioned chapter 5 to you, it caused me to look at my own life, my own practice, really, honestly, lack of practice at that point in my life of confessing my sin to other people, to other brothers. So I began meeting with a friend from school once a week, and we would meet together and we'd confess sin to one another. And time went on, and over the course of my seminary, Years, I saw a handful of pastor friends of mine, even a close family member, fall into moral failure, made a shipwreck of their faith. And the secret sins they had kept hidden for years, they, they, what happened was they just escalated and escalated and escalated because that's what sin does. Sin is active. It doesn't lie dormant. How many, if you went through this New Testament right now and looked at all the verses that have an active verb next to sin, your mind would be utterly blown. It is active. It never sleeps. It's always coming after you. 
That's why John Owen, the Puritan, writes, be killing sin or it will be killing you. We must be active in our killing of sin because sin is active in its killing of us. So these men and women, before they knew it, the secret sin they just kept suppressed and hidden for so long, it just bubbled up to the surface to the point where they completely ruined their lives, their families, their ministries. It was all gone. And God used those moments in my life, rather than to wreck me, which could have happened very, very easily, but rather than wreck me, He began to ingrain even more into my soul the importance of confessing sin to another, of bringing the darkness of sin into the light of Christ and fellow brothers. Since I've been in ministry, I've consistently met with other men, close friends in ministry, even to this day, and we confess sin to one another. It's looked like a lot of things, but what it's looked like most often is we have 11 questions. I created this document of 11 questions we ask each other, questions ranging from how have you served your wife this week, questions of what are you reading or studying this week, has your mind wandered into sexually immoral places this week, on and on we could go, even more embarrassing, intrusive questions than that. Where the last question, question 11, is have you just lied to me? One last chance to fess up before our brothers in Christ. And let me tell you, what's most impactful during those times of confession, listen, by the way, I'd be lying to you if I said this is a pleasant thing to do. It's embarrassing to let somebody see the depths of just grossness of my heart. It's not fun. It's painful. There are tears often shed and contrition by God's grace. But let me tell you the, the most impactful thing that is in those moments when I confess sin to other brothers. The most impactful thing for me is when another brother sits across from me and hears me confess my heart to him, the the deep, dark places of my heart, and with compassion in his eyes, because he knows exactly where I am. With compassion in his eyes, he looks at me and he says, Austin, your sins have been forgiven. Go and sin no more. He is not absolving me of my sin. Christ has done that. He is reminding me of the gospel and of who I am in Jesus Christ because I forget every day who I am. When we confess sin, we are believing the words of Micah 7, 8, when we hear the prophet writes, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy, when I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. If any of you have questions on what this looks like, and I'm not talking just to men, women too. You know, a lot of times when we talk about confession of sin, we just think about a bunch of dudes sitting in a circle talking about their porn addictions, all right? That's not what I'm talking about. That is what I'm talking about, but it's more than that too, right? Women too, women confessing sin to other women. Are you in the practice of doing this? And listen, if you have any questions about that or you you have any thoughts on how that's to be carried out, I have a list of questions for men. And at Johnson Ferry, I had the women's ministry make up a list of questions for women. I'd love to send those to you. Just work your way through them. Every single time you get together, work your way through them. It is not fun. You're going to want to shy away. You're going to want to pull away. You're not going to want to do it. But by God's grace, you need to do it. Sin dies when it's brought into the light. It dies. So we need to bring sin into the light. So the people of God, they walk in righteousness. The people of God, they confess sin. And then third, whereas sin creates a people of vengeance, the church is to be a people of forgiveness. 
forgiveness. Verse 9 reminds us that forgiveness is rooted in the gospel. Listen, if you have a church that starts confessing sin to each other, you're inevitably going to have a church that needs to forgive each other. They go hand in hand. They go hand in hand. Christ has forgiven us. And so we too are called on to forgive. This is not easy. In fact, it's not even possible apart from God's grace in us. You know, it's our natural inclination as human beings to want justice, right? I talked about this last week. I didn't talk about this. Yeah, I did talk about this. Maybe I talked about it last week. But we want justice. All my sermons run together. We want wrongs to be made right. But the difference for the Christian in seeking to right personal wrongs is we believe vengeance and justice are not ours to take. It's the Lord's. We trust him to mete out the rightful consequences for wrongs against us, and there will be consequences, either in this life or the next. But to demonstrate forgiveness towards one another, towards those who have wronged us, doesn't mean they're not consequences. Lewis Drummond, one of the guys I read, he said, Forgiveness speaks of guilt gone, remorse removed, depression disappearing, and emptiness of life eradicated. We experience those benefits in Christ and we're called on to demonstrate them to other people. Which leads to the last characteristic of a gospel community here. Whereas sin creates a people of hopelessness, the church is to be a people of joy. Talk about joy all the time around here. Joy. Joy should characterize us. One of the primary motivations of John bearing witness to us, verse 4, is that his and our joy may be complete. When you have a community of people bearing witness with their lives and walking in righteousness, confessing shortcomings, but seeking forgiveness in the process, when that exists, we will experience joy. We don't have to hide behind our man-made masks anymore. Instead of isolated loneliness, we now have the opportunity to have authentic gospel community rooted in Jesus Christ. Come out of the darkness, Emmanuel Church. And it's going to be messy. But man, it is going to be so life-giving. Come out of the darkness. May the light of Christ transform us as a people, as individuals, and may He get great, great glory. And may we experience good because we trust one another enough to let them see and know all of us. Let's pray together. Father, I... If you kept a record of wrongs, O God, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. Father, we thank you for the cross of Christ. We thank you, Father, for the forgiveness that is found in Him. The forgiveness that reminds us that we can trust one another with all of our shortcomings, with all of our messiness, with all of those dark places in our souls, because we understand that those dark places are being rooted out by the light of Christ. Give us a greater awareness of ourselves, for in a greater understanding of ourselves, we will be more gracious and patient towards one another. 
But Father, we do thank You for Your promises that we confess our sins. You are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Do that, O God, we pray. Do that in us and through us. May this church truly be a gospel community. We love You, Lord, and pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. So we're going to come now and respond. from Emmanuel Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to Emmanuel with an I, Birmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham.